Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. And every week, of course, we explore multiple questions and conversations from a Christian perspective, including uh, this segment, Tell Me Where I'm Wrong, uh, which is to uh, look at a variety of different subjects, and it has rules. And the rules for this are that uh, I am not allowed, even if I want to, to debate or to argue. Uh, I have to ask questions uh, to answer uh, for, for informational purposes for me to think through, but not to debate. And I always ask our guest to hold me to that, uh, which means, because I'm kind of cunning, I can start arguing with, uh, with questions <laughs> and I expect someone, and I think I did that a couple of times with Shane Claiborne on the death penalty and he, he was too polite to call me out, but I, I really do want uh, guests to call me out on that. And today I wanted to talk about infant baptism, believer's baptism, those sorts of questions. I, uh, I, talk about this all the time because it really struck me uh, early on in my first, uh, one of my first ministry positions uh, serving uh, on staff at a Baptist church. There was a woman in the church who was there for everything. She was active. She was engaged. She was always there. And so we were having a discussion about who to put on a certain committee. And I said, well, Mrs. Jones, uh, obviously, she, she should be the one to lead it. And they said, well, we would, but she's not a member of the church. And I said, uh, what? Why is she not a member of the church? They said, well, she comes from a Methodist background, so she was baptized as an infant. And in order to be a member of this Baptist church, you have to, uh, you have, to have believer's baptism by immersion. And they said, Mrs. Jones goes every Thursday to get her bouffant hair fixed. And uh, she can't stand the thought of uh, having that bouffant hair messed up with the water. So she's just, uh, she's just content just to be here and to serve, but not to be a member. At most times, though, in Christian history, when people have had this sort of discussion about what is baptism and what should baptism be, it's not about hair care issues. It's, it's usually about some really, really, sometimes really contentious uh, sorts of arguments in the history of the church about baptism. And that's why I wanted to have uh, with us today someone that I respect immensely and have for uh, 25 years, uh, I suppose. And that is Ligon Duncan, who is the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary with campuses in Jackson, Mississippi, and Orlando, and Charlotte, and Washington, D.C., and where else, Lig? New York City, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Sao Paulo, and we have a work in Jakarta, Indonesia as well. Well, that's that's why I honestly felt guilty asking you to do this because you may be the busiest human being that I know. And so we're I'm we're really all busy to... and we all have the same amount of hours in the day, uh, Russell. And I couldn't imagine a more delightful and I hope profitable for your listeners uh, hour to spend with you today. Well, thank you. It's. Uh, Leg before he was uh, before he was elected as chancellor at RTS, uh, he was serving as professor of systematic theology there for many years, uh, and also as pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which is a, a great church, is right around the corner from Eudora Welty's home, and uh, just a, a really 
you, you should you, you should go. Those of you who go through Jackson, and while you're there, uh, go over to Lemuria Bookstore, uh, which is a great bookstore uh, as well. And and there are plenty of things to do in Jackson. Uh, Lig, um, you know, this is obviously some of these um, tell me where I'm wrong conversations can be tense and you're just like, okay, I got to make sure that I'm modeling uh, convictional kindness and civility. This isn't one of them because um, this is, this is by definition going to be a, uh, a friendly conversation. But my question for you is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And, and what I mean by that is in the 19th century, there would be Baptist books. R.B.C. Howell had one called On the Evils of Infant Baptism. And you had really, really harsh polemics going back and forth on uh, baptism. That wouldn't happen now. Uh, you, you know, you and I and, and others who are Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians would all be working together on a, a variety of things. Is that because we're sort of seeing what's at stake in the unity of the gospel and seeing how much we have in common? Or is it because we just don't take baptism seriously enough? That's, that's a great uh, question. I think there's probably a little of both in the answer mm. uh, to that. And, uh, you know, clearly in the 19th century, I think those of us who were part of confessional Protestant traditions, uh, we did appreciate the commonalities that we shared over against Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. But our denominational life was so robust in the 19th century that it gave us a lot of freedom to turn on the, the afterburners in our mm -hmm. polemical conversations with one another. We did not fear a post-Christian world. Uh, we mm -hmm. were not in a world in which Christianity seemed small and secularism seemed to be the dominant force. Now, even in the 19th century, there were great concerns about Darwinism uh, and, and going all the way back to the Enlightenment, there was a great concern about deism and the, the encroaching, growing kind of secular, eventually at the end of the 19th century, sort of Nietzschean worldview. But that was not the, that may have been dominant in intellectual circles. Uh, it may have been dominant in certain social classes. But it, culturally, Christianity and, and Orthodox Protestant Christianity uh, was was still very, very significant in our culture. And I don't think we felt our very existence threatened. <laughs> Scroll mm -hmm. forward to the 21st century, and we are in a very different place, at least in our part of the world. Uh, if, mm -hmm. if you and I go to places in Africa and Asia and South America, we will still feel the uh, power and the witness of Orthodox Protestantism. In, in the West, in North America, in, in Europe, we feel a receding cultural influence. And I think that that has probably made a lot of us realize that it's super important right now to emphasize the common things that we hold with the great Orthodox Christian tradition and the common things we hold as Protestants together. Uh, and I think most of us don't want to downplay um, so-called second-tier issues as if they're completely unimportant. You know, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I love Baptists mm -hmm. who think I'm wrong. I, I love mm -hmm. Baptists who are concerned for my soul because of my views on, on uh, the sacraments and other certain things. Uh, but I, I also love Baptists who recognize that we share the same gospel, uh, a same a same set of conviction on really important Christian doctrinal truths, and that we can have a common witness in our day and time that's really important and healthy for the church. Well, I'd like to start where we agree, not just on the gospel, but where we would certainly agree on baptism itself, uh, which is uh, just uh, several weeks ago, I was preaching for a former student of mine, church plant Atlanta, 
I had with me a journalist um, in the secular media world uh, who was there, and I was thrilled because this is someone who had seen sort of the bleakest side possible of um, evangelical Christianity in sort of a political context. And there we were, and the baptisms that were happening at that church of, of people who had never heard the gospel before until they encountered that church. There was a horse trough there uh, at the front of the church, and all of the children came in to sit on the front row uh, to, to watch. And just one person after the other giving testimony of belief in Christ and, and being baptized. And uh, that's, that's just, it doesn't matter how many times you see that. That, that is just incredible. Amen. I, I, I'll recount a, a, a different kind of story, but that reiterates the, the same point you're making. I was at a large megachurch. Uh, a number of years ago when I was on sabbatical, I had taken my family there because I was trying to, on sabbatical, I wanted to take my family around to various Bible-believing churches in the area. I knew the pastor of this church, who's a, a lovely man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't preaching that Sunday. He was away uh, the Sunday that we visited. And uh, very frankly, the sermon was a little disappointing. It was uh, It was thin. Uh, it, it could have been given at a rotary club by a Christian. I'm not sure you would have gotten the gospel out of it. Uh, but when it came time for the baptism to happen at that church, and it was a Baptistic church, and so uh, the baptism was going to be believer's baptism by immersion, it was a glorious exposition of the gospel in association with the baptism at that service. In fact, the clearest declaration of the gospel in that service mm. was the baptism. And so this Presbyterian's heart was not strangely warmed, but deeply warmed by mm. hearing the mm. gospel announced, hearing the wonderful testimonies of conversion and faith in Christ by the people that were being baptized. And it made me feel better about the whole thing. Uh, mm. So mm. Uh, it, it, that, that can be a a deeply, deeply moving thing. If anybody's ever been to a Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, baptism service in Washington, D.C., if if that if that won't encourage you as a Christian, you don't have a pulse. Mm, mm, yes, yes. Well, let's let's talk about uh, as somebody who um, has been both in academia and in the pastorate for uh, many years. Let's start with the pastorate, uh, and I'm recognizing that. Uh, Lig is not representing here pedo-baptism generally. There'd be all sorts of differences between Anglicans and Presbyterians, Lutherans on many of these things. But, uh, but in your, your tradition of the church, what would a, what would a baptism service look like? say, at uh, First Presbyterian Jackson or, or well, another church? Well, let me church. quickly describe an infant baptism, and then I'll quickly describe an adult baptism. Uh, okay. In an infant baptism, the uh, family would come uh, during the service uh, after the words of institution were read, because as Presbyterians, we believe that the scriptural uh, commands for baptism by Jesus uh, and the scriptural commands for the Lord's Supper by Jesus need to accompany every administration of the sacraments to give us warrant for doing these things. Uh, we, By the way, Presbyterians will use both sacraments and ordinances. My Baptist mm -hmm. friends will tend to say ordinances rather than sacrament, thinking that sacrament is a uniquely Roman Catholic thing and may entail some sort of mystical uh, view that would be inconsistent with evangelical faith. We'll use both of those words. Both of those words are in the Westminster uh, Confession, sacraments and ordinances, perfectly good words. Uh, the family will take vows uh, the uh, when when a child is being baptized, uh, the family will profess the child's need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. The uh, family will promise to rear the child in uh, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, uh, and to set a godly example before the child, and to pray for the day that the child will exercise faith in Jesus Christ, and then. Uh, the uh, child will be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
uh, through the pouring of water. And my, let me say, my congregation always uh, accused me of being a, a secret Baptist because I used so much water. I didn't, I didn't want <laughs> to, to drip, drip, drip on a child. I, I wanted that child to have a lot of water. And uh, I would pour, I'd hold the child in my uh, arm, in my left arm, and with my right arm, I would dip uh, the water out of the uh, baptismal font and pour it on the child's head and then pray for the child uh, again uh, in various aspects, uh, reminding us that, that baptism points us to the promises of God, that baptism represents union with Christ, that we long for this child to trust in Christ and experience all the glorious benefits of union with Christ. I oftentimes pray for the child's marriage in the future if it's God's will for that child to be married at some day in the future, that the Lord would give that child a godly, believing spouse. Uh, and, and specific things like that for the life of the child. And at an adult baptism, the, uh, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, would kneel uh, in front of me after answering five questions. Um, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, uh, save in his uh, glorious grace and gospel? Do you uh, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and you receive and rest on Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you promise to support the uh, worship and work of the church to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? And after the recipient uh, uh, makes a, a, a positive, a yes, and I do answer to those five questions, then again, uh, having read the words of institutions, I baptize uh, that person in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so that, that's how a baptism service happens at First Presbyterian Church. There's a, there's a font rather than a baptistry, so there's less water than there would be in a Baptist church. But with regard to adult baptism, that would be maybe one of the only uh, significant differences that someone would, would catch having gone to an, a, a Bible-believing Baptist church and then coming to our Presbyterian church. Isn't it right that you would you would receive immersion as valid baptism, and in some Presbyterian churches, someone may prefer to be baptized by immersion, and that's sometimes done. Is that yes? Is that and, accurate uh, about that? For, for, as far as Presbyterians are concerned, uh, immersion uh, by a, a, a Bible believing, gospel preaching church is perfectly valid baptism. Uh, w w Presbyterians do not believe that the mode of baptism is of the essence of the right. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, we have a theological reason why we practice a fusion or pouring or sprinkling, and it has to do with our interpretation of Acts chapter 2 uh, especially. But, uh, but we believe that but immersion the, the is a perfect— of the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Yes, exactly. The, the only yeah. baptism that is described as to its mode in the New Testament is Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every other baptism, you have to deduce the mode. Uh, and, you know, uh, Baptists very intelligently and understandably and historically will say, for instance, the word, the Greek words baptizo, uh, and the various associated word groups, if you pick up a lexicon, the first meaning will be to dip or to immerse. And so Baptists will say, therefore, really the right translation of that should be to immerse, not to baptize. Baptize is a transliteration, and it's a it's a translational fudge. You you mm -hmm. pedo Baptists aren't willing to go where the where the Greek is going to lead you there, and it, it what it means is immerse. It doesn't mean uh, baptize. But the the fact of the matter is, is there are places in the New Testament where baptizo and bapto can't mean immerse, like 1 Corinthians 10, where all the uh, children of Israel baptism. are baptized in the Red Sea. That can't mean immersion. 
Uh, the Egyptians were baptized by immersion in the Red Sea, <laughs> yeah. but the yes. but the children of Israel got got through on dry land. And I, I always joke with my class that means the only thing that could have happened is a little mist could have sprinkled on their heads as they were uh, <laughs> as they were crossing the Red Sea. So clearly, that's a it's a symbolic or a or a metaphorical or a literary use of baptizo or bapto there. But so Baptists will will point out, for instance that um, in, in the baptism of Philip in Ethiopian eunuch and of Jesus and John, Jesus and John and Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch are in the water. And so why did they go down to the river if baptism was going to be uh, by pouring or effusion? They could just stay up on the bank and gather some water up and do the baptism there. They, they had to go down into the river in order to uh, baptize through immersion. And then, of course, Romans chapter uh, 6 and the burying with Christ in baptism will be a appeal to. But if you look at the actual description of mode, the only time it's described is when Jesus says, Acts chapter 1, you are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then when the Holy Spirit baptizes the disciples in Acts chapter 2, it is by being poured out onto or into them from above. As the Ooh. picture is, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he's pouring out the Holy Spirit on his church. The disciples are not baptized into the Spirit. The Spirit is put into them. And of course, that, that language comes right out of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel Ooh. predicts that the Spirit will be poured out upon God's people. And so, for that reason, Presbyterians prefer a fusion as... The, the baptism. Now, let me quickly say, as you already know, Dr. Moore, Calvin said that immersion was the, was the right way uh, to do it. So for, for that reason, Presbyterians argue, look, if the mode of baptism was that important, God would have given us more instruction about that mode in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as it is, both Baptists and Presbyterians have to argue largely on inference when it comes uh, to the issue of mode. And therefore, for Presbyterians, the main thing is, is this baptism by a gospel-believing church, and is it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? It's a Trinitarian Orthodox baptism. And if that's there, Presbyterians are quite happy uh, to uh, admit into membership those who have been immersed uh, uh, upon a profession of faith as having a, a perfectly valid uh, baptism. And as you say, Russell, many Presbyterian churches will accommodate uh, even uh, the, the request of members to be baptized uh, upon profession of faith in that manner. Let me see if I've got the analogy correct. Um, in the baptistry in the church I grew up in, uh, there's a painting of the Jordan River uh, behind. Now, the Jordan River happened to look exactly like a South Mississippi uh, river, uh, but it was supposed to be the Jordan River uh, there. And so, uh, and so a great deal of emphasis on following the Lord Jesus in baptism. And so it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that what you're saying is um, it, it may be that at the Jordan Jesus was immersed by John. It may be that uh, water was poured by John, but that this is more or less like the question of um, using wine or non-fermented uh, grape juice uh, in the Lord's Supper. That that's not that's that that doesn't uh, that doesn't create the actual um, heart of the matter. Is the analogy correct there? Yeah, I think I think that's a it's a very similar kind of of argument that the mode is not of the essence of the sacramental rite. Uh, that the important thing is you use water. Uh, that you that you understand what the Bible intends by the meaning of that water, and that, by the way, is one of the areas where Baptists and Presbyterians in the Evangelical Protestant tradition we're very close on the meaning of the sacrament, what, it, what the nature of it is, what it intends to convey. That's, that's where we're very importantly together over against some sort of a view that views uh, sacraments as working ex opere operato, that is just by the administration of them, all the realities that are signed in the baptism come true. 
Presbyterians and Baptists both uh, want to emphasize all promises in the Bible are made to faith. And they all require a response of faith. That's very, very important for both of us. So when we get to the nature of the sacrament, we're, we're very, very close. There may be differences in emphases. We could talk about those in our time together. Mm-hmm. But those things are very, very close. But when it comes to mode, uh, it, it is something that is a circumstance of the administration of the rite of baptism. And, and we would see latitude for difference there. Mm. Well, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, I think that probably um, what a Presbyterian or many other Paedobaptists would say is wrong, even with the way that I posed the last question, is where I'm starting. I'm starting at the Jordan River, uh, so I'm starting in the middle of the biblical story, and what I actually ought to be doing is uh, starting with Abraham. And, and having a, a a fuller picture of both Old and New Testaments working together is it? Would that be an accurate? Oh, I, I think that's an incredible. In fact, I was thinking this morning before the conversation because I had just read a quote from Calvin yesterday where he said that the the New Covenant is of the same essence as the Abrahamic covenant. And I really do think that it's at that point that Baptists and Presbyterians begin to part ways on how to understand Mm -hmm. not just baptism, but new covenant church membership. Because Mm -hmm. for Presbyterians, yeah, you're right. Abraham is very, very important. The Abrahamic covenant is very, very important for a Presbyterian in arguing for the baptism of covenant children. And uh, because we would see just as Abraham was commanded not only to be circumcised himself, but also his eight-day-old infant uh, male children were to be baptized, Uh, so also in the New Covenant, because in Acts chapter 2, Peter just comes right out and says, you're to be baptized because this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a it's a big big mm-hmm. part of his argument at the end of his sermon in the uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two that the reason that they are to be baptized is because of the promise, the promise of the Father, mm-hmm. and that's a that's language that goes all the way back to Acts chapter one and then back into Luke chapter twenty four. Jesus over and over keeps referring to this promise of the Father, promise of the Father, promise of the Father. And that promise of the Father turns out to be the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3 that the Spirit's pouring out is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so for Peter and Paul, there's this strong tie-in between baptism and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And for so for Presbyterians, yes, we do want to go back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17 especially to start understanding how the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament relate and how we ought to operate in terms of the administration of the sacrament. But I, I want to say that the, the idea of following Jesus ought to be important to all of us, Baptists and Presbyterians. You know, it, you know wh- whatever your interpretation of Genesis 17 is, it's always a good thing to follow Jesus. So I think <laughs> right. the key there will be just to figure out what does that mean? Um, mm. And I, you know, I, I, as, a, as a Presbyterian, who grew up in a dominant Baptist culture where my grandparents were Southern Baptists, my mother had been reared in uh, the Southern Baptist context and and had studied at Southern Baptist institutions and taught in Southern Baptist institutions. I've lost count of the times, uh, uh, Russell, that I've been able to be privileged to sit in a service where uh, following uh, the Lord Jesus uh, in baptism was uh, inculcated. And so that's a good thing to do. I think we just need to know what does that mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, Jesus meant to identify with us in baptism. And John himself even recognized that. John said, hey, um, I, I don't have any business baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me because John's baptism is clearly a baptism of repentance for it's, it's, a, it's Israel recognizing that we have failed in our covenant with God, and we need forgiveness and restoration. 
and he John knows that Jesus does not need that forgiveness and restoration. He 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 says about Jesus, "Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world." He doesn't need his sins taken away. We need our mm-hmm. sins taken away. And so so clearly when Jesus says, "No John, you are going to baptize me." He is identifying with us. And so I I love it when my Baptist friends point that out. So it'll just be a question of how do we take that and what are the ramifications or implications of that for how we do baptism. And it seems, and and tell me if this is right, that fundamentally the the conversation going on between, say, Baptists and Anabaptists and uh, and Pedobaptists is less about baptism than it is about what really do we mean when we mean the church. So you would have on on the one end an emphasis that would say, um, well, Jeremiah 31 uh, is talking about a new covenant and the new covenant, uh, uh, God says, there is not not like the covenant that I had before with your fathers and the Difference being that the law is written on all of your hearts, no one no one needing to teach you that everyone will know the Lord from the, the least to the greatest. So that in a Baptist or Anabaptist sort of context, that would say, okay, that's the discontinuity with what was happening uh, in, in the old covenant. And now people are coming into the covenant, not by flesh and, and by ancestry and generation, but John 3, uh, new birth, one by one by one, so that the church ought to ideally be uh, made up only of believers, not of potential believers and believers, but only of believers. And you would say to that that the uh, that the problem there, I would assume, is a misunderstanding of what really is new about the new covenant. Is that is that right? Well, about uh, what, let me first what, of all what say, you, new? I think you've beautifully uh, uh, st- and clearly and succinctly stated the difference there. I, I, I tell my students all the time before you ever get to the argument of over pedo and credo baptism, underneath that, and far more important than that, is the definition of the church. And, and mm. what what is the membership of the church? How does that relate to the old covenant people of God? And I do agree with you that Jeremiah 31 and the interpretation of it is absolutely essential. It's not the only passage, but mm-hmm. it may be the most important passage that that Credo Baptists and Pado Baptists disagree on. And I do think it will boil down, number one, to your view of continuity and discontinuity, and number two, to your understanding of what it means that all will know me from the greatest to the least. And um, and I think, you know, if I can pull myself even back from the exegesis a little bit, I also think that our our context impacts the way we tend to read that. Um, Mm. And, uh, you know, just like what's the original context in which Jeremiah is stating that? He's stating that in the context of the national failure of the people of God just to worship the one true and living God. Um, You know, there were were archaeologists and liberal uh, Protestant theologians who were um, shocked at the discovery of uh, Baal figures in a Judahite shrine uh, just a few weeks ago. And there was a, you know, well, those Mm. of us who've been reading uh, Kings and Chronicles and Samuel were not shocked uh, by the the discovery of a Baal figure in a Judahite shrine. I mean, that's what the whole Old Testament has been protesting the Mm -hmm. syncretism of the people of God. And, And Jeremiah is saying, hey, look, God is up to here with that. And, and he is going to judge you now. He has waited patiently for, um, you know, a thousand years for you, for you people to just mm-hmm. worship the one true and living God. And, he, and let me tell you, he's going to do something where he brings about a people that are going to worship him. Uh, and they're not mm-hmm. going to be worshiping the Baals and, the, and, and involved in Moloch uh, practices and these other things. And, and so the language of they shall all know me from the greatest to the least and, and Ezekiel's language of they will know that I am the Lord. You just find that kind of stuff in the prophets all the time. So when we're interpreting, okay, what does that mean you know, for the, for the New Testament? That's the first sort of context we need to think about. I think the second context that those of us who are 
evangelical Protestants need to think about is not only the Reformation when we're arguing with Roman Catholicism, but moving into the 17th century, the entry into the confessional age. And interestingly, that's where the stream of Baptist belief, who in, uh, you know, Dr. Moore, you know better than I do the debates about the, what are the origin of American Baptists, you know, and, and some mm-hmm. folks want to take that into the Anabaptist tradition. I personally mm-hmm. think that the origin of most American Baptists is with the English general regular Baptists in the beginning of the, uh, of the 17th century. And, and, and they were in a context where nominalism was was beginning to be the dominant yeah. problem in the churches, whereas in the Reformation there was this, <gasps> we've been freed from the yoke of works righteousness through this sort of churchly sacramental system. We've rediscovered the gospel. There was this, this, this liberation that just permeated the churches of Europe in the 16th century, but by the 17th century, state churches in particular— were dominated already by nominalism, and Baptists of mm-hmm. all people can they can smell nominalism, you know, five hundred yards upwind. They they except they, when it's they, us, except <laughs> when it's us. We, we, we can identify with other people. Well, that's yeah. another story for another day, right? But, so you know, so the 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 Brownites and 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 those guys in England in the seventeenth century were deeply concerned about that kind of nominalism in the state churches. And when when they went back to Jeremiah 31, they said, "Well, this is exactly what Jeremiah is talking about here. <laughs> you know, you, mm-hmm. you people mm-hmm. that are that are baptizing pagans and 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 because they were born in England and baptizing babies of pagans because they were born in England, you're actually watering down the great reality that's meant to be set forth in Jeremiah 31. So I I agree with you. I think it gets down to how are you going to take Jeremiah 31 in terms of continuity and discontinuity and how do you view the people of God in the Old Testament in relation to the people of God in the New Testament? As a Presbyterian, uh, I, I will simply say that I, I don't think that either Jeremiah or Jesus predict a church in which there will be no unbelievers. Um, and, uh, and, and even the experience of Simon Magus in the book of Acts, uh, you know, he, he, here's a baptized believer who's immediately condemned uh, mm-hmm. by Peter. So I think all of us ought to recognize that even in a, a Baptist church that takes church discipline very seriously and takes credible profession very seriously, I don't want to hold that Baptist pastor to the standard that all his people have to be the elect. All his people have to be regenerated. Mm-hmm. It's just that a Baptist pastor feels like, look, Lig, if you're trying to get a church of adult believers, it's, you know, not requiring a credible profession of adults is going to get you into trouble, uh, you know, down the line as at the at the at the bar of baptism. And so that's what a Baptist is going to say uh, to me. But I, I do agree theologically, it's going to go back to Jeremiah 31, and it's going to boil down to continuity and discontinuity. So uh, how do you? You talked about nominalism. How do you avoid, let's take, um, you have a Presbyterian church with a five-year-old in that church who was baptized as part of the covenant, but hasn't personally experienced new birth. Uh, And and you would obviously say the baptism doesn't guarantee that that will uh, ever happen. So how do you avoid the sort of situation that, say, Kierkegaard was talking about in the Danish church where he says, Everybody, because everybody is a Christian, that means that really nobody is a Christian and you almost have to take the Christianity away before you can uh, introduce it. How, how do you keep that from, from happening? From yeah, being by the, the way, it's interesting. My son has, has recently gotten into Kierkegaard and has read oh, yeah. everything by Kierkegaard. And so we've yeah. been having lots of Kierkegaard uh, conversations. Uh, I, I think I, th- I think one thing that I like to tell my students is that remember that the very first child who was circumcised in the Old Testament was Ishmael. So mm. sacraments mm. are never a cause for presumption. We we should we should never presume anything in the Christian life. And mm-hmm. the way that God has appointed everything to work, including and especially in the Abrahamic covenant 
is by faith. And, and nobody can do faith for you. <laughs> you, you, you either believe or you don't. Everything is the faith response to God's promises. And so if we aren't aiming every single person in our church at all times, every day, Lord's day after Lord's day to the day they take their last breath to Christ and to faith in him in response to his promises, all of us are going to promote nominalism. And, you know, you, I mean, you just said very humbly Hey, we've got a problem with nominalism in the in the Baptist world today. But I mean, don't you think a lot of that is because there's been such a desire for numbers that the credibility of professors has been uh, diminished, and yeah. um, and 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 so you know, it, yeah, that can happen to any of us. But mm-hmm. for me especially, I recognize, yeah, I, I totally get how you could foster nominalism through the practice of infant baptism. And if I'm not aware of that, then I could actually unwittingly uh, be contributing to the theological unhealth of my congregation. Uh, and so I'm going to have to do a good job of explaining how that works and how the the right of covenant baptism is meant to foster faith, not to diminish it. So what... What is the, you have a, a baby over here who's not baptized, uh, but has Christian parents and growing up in a Christian church. You have a baby over here who is baptized, Christian parents in a Christian church. What is the difference between those two babies? That's great. You know, the one great difference that I think that we should never, ever discount is providence. In God's providence, hmm. one child has been placed in a home where the gospel is believed. Mm-hmm. None of us should ever, ever discount the enormity of that blessing in God's providence. Yeah. That one child, if, if, if those parents do what they're supposed to do as believers, are going to bear a consistent witness, not just with their teaching, but especially with their example and with their prayers uh, and and so that child is going to be reared in a context where the nurture and the admonition of the Lord is the native air in which she or he breathes, and that is a you know all, all of us because because we believe that God's word is a means of grace, uh, mm-hmm. recognize that the exposure to that means of grace is an enormous privilege. And I, I know a number of years ago, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Uh, who obviously would not be committed to the uh, to the uh, uh, inculcation of infant baptism, uh, made the observation that something like ninety four percent of Christians that had come to faith in Christ through BGEA campaigns uh, either came from Christian families or had been exposed to Christian friends uh, who had been involved in in bringing them to the church or to the crusade and such. And that should not surprise us that the ordinary way that God would make the next generation of believing Christians is by placing them in believing homes. Now, that doesn't mean that we as believers don't care about people uh, that are not born in believing homes. In fact, we are ready to scale land and sea and pour enormous resources Mm -hmm. into making sure that those who are not the people of God become the people of God, because such were we, you know, that's, you know, I, I tell people, you know, my, my, my ancestors were running around the woods of North Europe naked when Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a Gentile. I was brought into this, I was brought into this thing by God's grace. And um, so I think don't ignore the providence thing. That's, that's one huge thing in terms of a means by which God draws us to Christ that the child in a believing home has. And then, of course, objectively, the child in a believing home should be sitting under the administration of the means of grace in a church in a way that a child in an unbelieving home would not. And then I would say this, the child in the believing home also has promises that are made to her or to him that are not made to that child in the unbelieving home. Now, that doesn't mean that the child in the unbelieving home can't become the recipient of those promises. But those promises are made in a very direct way, the promises to you and to your children. And that language is used in both 
Genesis 17 and Acts chapter 2. The promise is to you and to your children. Uh, Now, the, the children in the unbelieving home are a part of the afar off that get mentioned in uh, in Acts chapter 2, but they're very direct promises made to believers and their children because God is wanting to work generationally through households, through families in the extension of the faith. You're very right that we cannot presume because of the religious pedigree of our parents that we are in friendship with God. That must be done by ourselves by faith. Uh, and of course, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in, in us when we do. Uh, and so that does not alleviate us from the responsibility of faith, but boy, does it place us in a, in a place where faith is cultivated and certain promises are made to us, uh, which frankly puts a greater obligation on the children of believers than on unbelievers and a greater judgment if we turn our deaf ears to the sweet Mm. call of the gospel of the Lord. So it sounds like to me, I I know uh, one of the things I was always fighting against in a a Baptist uh, context uh, was kind of a hyper-Protestantism that that, that wanted to spend so much time talking about what baptism and Lord's table are not to the degree that it, it often went way too far. And this is just a this is just a reminder and so forth. And, and what I would always say to my students is, uh, this is a word. Uh, with, with baptism, Jesus is speaking something to you. And Lord's table, Jesus is speaking something. It's not just remind yourself. Of, it's a proclaim his death until he comes. And the word doesn't mean that everyone under the sound of that word uh, comes, to, comes to faith or comes to repentance. But it does mean that the word has power. Uh, and so in your view, would the baptism of that infant be really a lot like uh, what all Christians would say, which is to say that the children need to be under the, the hearing of the word of God and that they, they not every church and every family will have prodigals, but... Uh, you can't say on the basis of that, well, that means that uh, having that five-year-old under the hearing of, say, preaching That's is so good. not so good. It's not, it doesn't uh, work. Two parts in, in reply be, uh, to your great question. One is our, our wonderful friend and colleague, Michael Haken, uh, is, is always desirous of telling his Baptist audience, mm-hmm. do not downplay the efficacy of the sacraments. Uh, and, and Spurgeon, by the way, is a great example of n- nobody could gainsay uh, Charles Spurgeon's uh, Baptist commitments. That man was committed theologically uh, to Baptist ecclesiology and, and a view of the ordinances and such, but boy, did he have a wonderful view of baptismal efficacy and sacramental uh, efficacy in a, in a thoroughly Protestant way, not in a, in a Roman Catholic mm-hmm. way. Uh, that uh, and, and you see that come out especially in his view of the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. uh, so so that it's not just an empty rite, but it's it's something that the Lord uses as a means of grace. And so I I, I want to applaud your emphasis on that. Now for 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 me, the important thing about uh, the the baptism of covenant children is it emphasizes God's promise rather than their present state of faith so that when they do come to faith later, they realize that God's grace precedes their faith. That is, before they ever reached back to God in faith, he had already reached out to them in grace, so that he is the one who has brought them to faith in Christ. He is the one who has brought them from death to life. He is the one who has made promises and commitments to them before they were ever able to respond to those promises and commitments in faith. And so baptism ought to be done not on the basis of presumption. Sometimes you will hear in various parts of the the Reformed tradition that baptism is done on the basis of presumptive regeneration. We either presume that the child will be regenerate or is regenerate, and therefore we baptize the child. 
I think that's a huge mistake and uh, and is is not the best representation of the reform view. I don't think we ever presume anything uh, in the in the Christian life. But I do think what we see is when a child is baptized, Warfield said this many years ago, it reminds us that in the kingdom of God, we do not do, we are done for. That is, God has to do something for us and in us in order to bring us to himself. And that doesn't mean that faith is unimportant. It just means that the exercise of faith and the reality of the Spirit's work of conversion are not tied to the time of the administration of that baptism. Now, again, my Baptist friends will very intelligently say to me, yeah, well, that's mm-hmm. nobody thinks that but y'all. <laughs> you know, um our Roman Catholic friends think that the efficacy of the right is tied to the time of its administration. We believe that it's uh, tied to the time of administration. Only you crazy Presbyterians uh, think that there is a disconnect between the application of the baptism and what it symbolizes uh, in reality and the faith and the conversion and, and all the other glorious benefits of union with Christ. But that's how a Presbyterian would respond. That's the difference. That child who has received baptism has received a tangible promise in the sign and seal of baptism, which we look to come to fruition in faith. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Russell Moore. I'm going to ask one more question that's going to sound like it's a fake question meaning to debate, but it's, I promise it's not. I, I genuinely am curious to know what your, your response to this. Uh, the children of Israel who were baptized in the cloud and, and, and in the sea, uh, the children uh, were with uh, everyone else, but they also, also took the Passover and they also ate the manna uh, that came down from heaven. I, I don't think the five-year-old in the Presbyterian church who has been baptized probably isn't going to be admitted to the Lord's table, if I'm accurate. So, so why not? What, what, what's, the, what's the difference there? No, and that's not a that's not a combative question at all. That's a logical question for a Baptist to ask, ask a Presbyterian, and a Presbyterian ought to be ready to give an answer to that. It may not satisfy uh, his or her Baptist friends, but th- that you know, Presbyterian should never be offended by that question. That's a good question because for, for let me let me just pull back and say I think one of the geniuses of the Baptist position is that the church world distinction in the ordinances is right there together in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. In other words, who's the world and who's the church? Well, the world is on one side of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the church is on the other Mm -hmm. side Mm -hmm. of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so Baptists naturally look at Presbyterians and say, what is this strange halfway house that you Mm -hmm. have created? You've, you, you know, you've got baptism here and then you've got the Lord's Supper here and they're not right together because you're admitting covenant children, infants, 
to baptism, but you're not admitting them to the Lord's table. Now, there have been a small minority of paedo-baptists that have admitted uh, children to the Lord's table. There's still a small uh, minority. I don't buy their arguments. Um, and, and so you're right that most of the paedo-baptist tradition uh, and, and with apologies to my Greek Orthodox friends and uh, to some small segments in uh, the uh, in the Protestant world, most of the Pado Baptist tradition has said no children should be admitted to baptism uh, as a rite of initiation, but they should not be admitted to the Lord's table as a rite of fellowship. And the the uh, the theological argument for that from a Presbyterian uh, and and really from an Anglican or Methodist or uh, Congregationalist standpoint is baptism is a passive rite that is administered to someone. The Lord's Supper is an active rite wherein the recipient must actively do something. They, that he has to take the elements and and feed them. Uh, to himself. And interestingly, even, even when pedo-communion is performed in, in Greek Orthodoxy or elsewhere, it has to be done in such a way that is uniquely administered to infants. They're not able to take it yeah. uh, for themselves. So it actually ends up being different from the way that it's administered to other uh, participants in the rite. And we would say there, there's actually a rationale to that because the Lord's Supper is a rite of ongoing communion and fellowship with God, whereas baptism is a rite of initiation. It's the, it's the recognition that this person is a part of the family of God. And going back to the examples from the Exodus, I would say, you know, I've, I've looked pretty hard at the whole question of the participation of children in the Passover, and it's, it's still unclear to me. I, you know, I hear some people arguing, yes, they, they were uh, participating, but there would have been some elements of the Passover that infants especially could not have partaken uh, of. The roasted lamb and the bitter herbs would have been things that would have been uh, unsuitable for infants to uh, partake of. And there's even the language uh, in the Passover ceremony where the child has to ask his father or answer the question, why is this night different from all other nights? So there, there may even be some indication in the Exodus Passover instructions that there was a, you know, there was an age of, um, of, uh, of, of, of knowledge. There was an age of understanding that admitted you to full participation in the uh, Passover meal. But for, for me, the biggest thing is the Lord's Supper is a rite, or the Passover, the um, baptism is a rite which is administered to you. Uh, and the Lord's Supper is a rite which you have to actually actively uh, engage in. And then, of course, Paul's language is you, you need to understand the body, which I take to be the church. I don't, I don't, I don't take that to be you need to understand something mystical about the elements of the bread and, and the cup. I think, you, I think it means you need to understand. If you look at the context of 1 Corinthians, what Paul is dealing with is division in the church. Mm. And so he, when, he, when he comes to the instructions about the Lord's Supper, he says, do you discern the Lord's body? Do you not understand that this is the body of the Lord that you're sitting with, uh, your brothers and sisters around this table? Now, how do, what does that mean for how you act towards one another? What does that mean to your fellowship? You're looking out for one another, caring for one another. So you've got to be mature enough to be able to do that. And you've got to be mature enough to be able to examine yourself. And so for, for me, it's the difference in the nature of the rights that explains why you would admit children to one but not uh, to the other. And that's just, the, that's just been the standard sort of reform practice since really, the, if you read uh, Scotty Ohl's book, The Shaping of the Reformed Baptismal Rite in the 16th Century, is probably the classic Protestant work on the theology of baptism, not only in Calvin's Geneva, but just in sort of general uh, Protestant Reformed circles in the 16th century. And he does a great job of just sort of sketching out how they did baptism and the Lord's Supper with young people in Geneva. And you, you may know that children in Geneva had to memorize the Genevan Catechism and be examined on it before they came to the Lord's table. So Calvin had a pretty high expectation yeah. for what children knew before they became uh, communicant members.
There is a young man on staff at the church uh, that I'm part of, Emmanuel Church uh, in Nashville, named Hunter Braden, who supposedly has a dead-on Ligon Duncan impression that uh, he will not do for me because uh, I think he's afraid that I will uh, ask him to do it for you at some point. So he won't do it for me. But I, I, I'm telling you about it anyway, just maybe out of spite that he won't do the uh, impression in front of me. But at, at Emmanuel, Emmanuel Church, I, I'm uh, serving in a context which myself 10 years ago would not have been able to imagine but with a group of people who aren't all on the same page on baptism, mm -hmm. even on the staff. We have Presbyterians, we have people uh, who from Baptist backgrounds, and we have, uh, we have Anglicans uh, there as well. And yet, take baptism very seriously. Yeah. Because there's the, the motive of, um, we may disagree on where the text is going, but everybody's, everybody's really trying to discern what that is. And I think, that's, uh, I think that's wonderful. But one of the things that at that church, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Ray Ortland, uh, I'm struck by whenever I'm at his house and he and his wife, Jannie, are praying or in any other context, they're praying for their own family for to the tenth generation, so they're they're looking forward to uh, these these future generations in a way that always is sort of convicting and humbling to me because I pray for my children all the time, but I often don't think about future grandchildren and great grandchildren and to pray for them, and it seems to be wherever we come down on uh, infant baptism, that needs to be uh, that needs to be at the forefront of all of our minds. Amen. Well, Lig Duncan, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, Reformed Seminary, RTS, is a unicorn in many ways in theological education because in a time when um, so many people are talking about how beleaguered uh, theological education is and whatever, RTS is booming and uh, succeeding and, and growing and, and bringing together this amazing faculty and students. If somebody's interested in finding out more about RTS, how do they do that? Yeah, but the easiest thing for people to do would be to go to rts.edu. And you can get all the information about us, learn about us, contact a person, talk with a person, chat with a person online, call a person on the phone, anything you want to do, rts.edu. Well, I always learn from you, and not just in what you say, which is always brilliant, but in the way that you communicate it uh, so well. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that you take the time to be with us today. Well, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Just so thankful to see you again, my friend. It's been so long. We need to we need to make up for yes, that. And we thank do. you for your ministry and this opportunity at CT and also for your work at Emmanuel. And please do give my good friends there uh, my warm regards. All right, I sure will. Thank you, Lig Duncan. And we'll take a quick break and I'll be back with a few reflections on what we talked about. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But there all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. 
Welcome back to the Russell Moore Show. That was uh, a fascinating conversation with Ligon Duncan, and uh, I knew it would be. He's he's a brilliant uh, scholar and a and just a, a great Christian man uh, who really does care about uh, talking uh, back and forth on these uh, on a variety of different issues. So I knew it would be. And rather than, for those of you who, this is the first of these segments you've listened to, this is not the time when I come in and do a rebuttal, if, if I disagree. It's the time where I come in and say, here are the things that I uh, have to think about and that I thought were, uh, were the strongest uh, there. And so I think that, uh, I think that Lig did a really good job of, um, of sort of sorting through what, in his view, infant baptism is and isn't. And also, I think, did a really good job of sort of um, dealing with 1 Corinthians 10, uh, which I do think is the strongest uh, 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 text in terms of uh, infant baptism. So I thought he did a really good job with that in terms of uh, in terms of mode. I suppose where I would still need to think more about this conversation would be on that discussion of the New Covenant uh, on the discussion of how do you, with a mixed body of regenerate people and unregenerate people, keep from having uh, a, a nominal uh, Christianity. Um, and what Lig was too polite to say is to say, well, I mean, obviously the Baptistic world has, if anything, more of a problem with nominalism. The, the, yeah, and that is definitely... Trust me, I know that is definitely true. But I would say that one of the reasons why that happens is because in some places, Baptistic churches really don't have that that sharp of a church world distinction. But there really is sort of a state church, not of a, a nation state, but of a culture in many places. So that would uh, that would be things that I would need to uh, think about uh, some more. But it was a fascinating conversation. And we'll be back next week to talk about a variety of things. Be sure to send me your questions that you have for our question show at questions at russellmore.com on anything uh, that you have. So thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. It helps people uh, to find us uh, there. And if you're listening on a smartphone, uh, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes with some resources for you. And uh, send this along to a friend who might be interested in it. And as you do so, check out Christianity Today, uh, founded by Billy Graham, a global media company working a variety of of different uh, subjects. The new issue of the magazine, Christianity Today, uh, the December issue, uh, striking cover of Joseph uh, holding up. Uh, the baby Jesus with some really insightful articles, one of them about uh, the significance of Jesus as a stonemason um, and, and sort of taking that understanding of carpenter and, and actually exploring the context. It's a really, really fascinating piece. So we'll be back next week. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Administration for Christianity Today by Christine Cole and Pam Vodanova. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. 
Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.